1: Hanif Abdurraqib is a poet, essayist, and cultural critic from Columbus, Ohio. He is the author of a New York Times best-selling biography on A Tribe Called Quest, Go, go, go Ahead in the Rain. We got, uh, You gotta wait for that. Uh, the Crown Ain't Worth Much, uh, nominated for a Hurston Wright Legacy Award. And They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, named a best book of 2017 by NPR, Pitchfork, Oprah Magazine, Chicago Tribune, Slate, Esquire, GQ, and Publishers Weekly, among others. He is a Callaloo Creative Writing Fellow, a poetry editor at Muzzle Magazine, and a member of the poetry collective Echo Hotel with poet essayist Eve Ewing. Uh, abdul Rakib has two forthcoming books, including the collection you just uh, uh, purchased, uh, Fortune for Your Disaster, and a history of black performance in the United States titled They Don't Dance No More. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Hanif abdul Rakib. <laughs>
0: Hey, everyone. I was intrigued by the We Rate Dogs card game. (laughs) But will not touch it. Um, Thank you for being here on the first night of the NBA season, for those of whom (laughs) that matters. Uh, It matters to me. I had to silence my phone because I'm in a group chat that's like Poets Who Care About Basketball, and apparently the <laughs> the Raptors-Pelicans game is very close. Get well soon, Zion. <laughs> okay. I'm going to play with this microphone a bit. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Right here? Okay. Oh. There. Let's... Let's take it from the top to quote contemporary philosopher Haley Williams. (laughs) Thanks for laughing at my misery business joke. (laughs) This poem is called The Prestige. The poem begins not where the knife enters, but where the blade twists. Some wounds cannot be hushed, no matter the way one writes of blood and what reflection arrives in its pooling. The poem begins with pain as a mirror, inside of which I adjust a tie the way my father taught me before my first funeral. And so the poem begins with old grief again at my neck. On the radio, a singer born in a place where children watch the sky for bombs is trying to sell me on love as something akin to war. And I have no lie to offer as treacherous as this one. I was most like the bullet when I viewed the body as a door, but I'm past that now. No one will bury their kin when desire becomes a fugitive between us. There'll be no folded flag at the doorstep. A person only gets to be called a widow once, and then they are simply lonely. The bluest period gratitude not for love itself but for the way it can end without a house on fire. This is how I plan to leave next, unceremonious as birth in a country overrun by the ungrateful Grateful living. The poem begins with a chain of well-meaning liars walking one by one off the earth's edge. That's who died and made me king, who died and made you. This is, oh, thank you to you <laughs> back corner. Um, here's a poem about Michael Jordan, which is fitting. <laughs> but it's also about my mom. It is maybe time to admit that Michael Jordan definitely pushed off. (laughs) (laughs) That one time, in the 98 NBA Finals, and in praise of one man's hand on the waist of another's, And in praise of the ways we guide our ships to the shore of some brief and gilded mercy, I touch my fingers to the hips of this vast and immovable sadness and push once more. And who is to say, really, how much weight was behind Jordan's palm on that night in Utah? And on that same night, one year earlier, the paramedics pulled my drowning mother from the sheets where she slept, and they said it must have felt like a whole hand was pushing down on her lungs. And I spent the whole summer holding my breath in bed until the black spots danced on the ceiling and I am sorry that there is no way to describe this that is not about agony or that is not about someone being torn from the perch of their comfort and the same night a year before my mother died Jordan wept on the floor of the United Center locker room after winning another title because it was Father's Day and his father went to sleep on the side of a road in 93 and woke up a ghost and there is no moment worth falling to our knees and galloping toward like the one that sings our dead back into the architecture and so yes for a moment in 98 Michael Jordan made what space he could on the path between him and his father's small and breathing grace and so yes there is an ocean between us the length of my arm and I have built nothing for you that can survive it and from here I am close enough to be seen but not close enough to be cherished and from here I can see every possible ending before we even touch Um I'm going to read a few poems that all have the same title in some order. The problem is <laughs> the problem with reading out of the same book a lot, which I normally don't do. I normally like read out of the book a couple times and like pass it off to someone is that you just fold down all the pages? <laughs> well, by you I mean me. The you is not universal. How can black people write about flowers at a time like this? Maybe all the blues requires is a door through which a person can enter and exit. Every god hides their eyes behind a blue hood. The hooded devil waiting at the crossroads doesn't give a fuck about the women who sent a man wailing with a guitar case on his back. It isn't loneliness if enough tongues have your cores jumping from underneath their hooded ruckus. Maybe all the blues requires is a person who has been touched before in a caravan of hands busy with their own pleasures. If you can't fashion a song out of that, there is no god or devil that can make something out of your soul anyway. A father stands over his crying son and hisses, I'll give you something to cry about, as if he didn't already bring a child into a world that requires neither of them. How can black people write about flowers at a time like this? Drake said, y'all better not come to my funeral with that fake shit. And this is how I knew he'd never slept on a floor by way of his loneliness and empty pockets. What is neither here nor there is that I cling to the past because in it I had yet to know pain and therefore was held only by that which desired my boyish appetite. We buried Tyler and the violets I placed on his grave were plastic and cost four ninety nine at the corner store by the punk house where we had cake on his 19th birthday and there were purple heart-shaped petals iced into the corner of it. And I am saying that I would not know a real Violet if I ran my hands across what I imagine is its silk jaw. I would not know even if you pulled a string of them from your pockets and gently planted the string along my neck and said someone not here thought this would look pretty on you. Friends, the trick to this one is that I laid the plastic on the grave I least wanted to dig death itself, that fake shit I stay praying to show up somewhere how can black people write about flowers at a time like this actually, I'll read one more um, I'll read one more of these how can black people write about flowers at a time like this Free love till the check comes, and me and mine reach in our fruitless pockets for the wallets we know we left at the crib next to the framed black and whites of our divorced or widowed parents. There were hand-drawn daisies on the De La Soul album cover once, and now I stay on that hippie shit. Arms open the length of a day's eye and no one running toward them but in a state of ghosts, hand-drawn from the depths of memory all my worst enemies keep. Native tongue, and all that means is I know the exact ground to which my moans owe their treacherous birth. I know which branch of a tree will bend under a storm's weight and offer its palms to my begging mouth. The satisfaction in breaking a loosely cooked egg is in the yellow clawing its way beyond the bondage of white. There is nothing more arrogant than beauty at rest. De la said D-A-I-S-Y meant the inner sound, y'all, and I guess that explains the insomnia. Y'all, the inner sound is a long between a door slamming shut and the kiss of a lock which says you will never again in your life and put that on everything, put that on the book I slid under a table leg to stop my yoke from running, put that on any room so empty, every name inside is an echo. I lived, um, so I lived in, is anyone here from Connecticut? Oh, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I, hey, hey y'all. Um, and y'all were at um, Wesleyan, right? Yeah. It's wild that I remember, but I, yeah, shout out. Yeah. I lived in Connecticut for two and a half years, and it was not my, it was bad. I was trying to be gentle with the, uh, I did not enjoy it personally. It was not my cup of tea. I, li- I lived in New Haven, and New Haven was uh, known for a few things, but um, like in the ranking of things New Haven is known for, it's like Yale, liberal racism, which I think those two are connected, uh, and, and pizza. Uh, and unfortunately, I consumed great amounts of two of the three of those things. Um and um <laughs> New Haven was so funny. When I think about um obviously like racism manifests itself differently everywhere. Uh but I'm from a place where it's just like, you know, you see the person wearing like a Confederate flag romper and you're like, Oh, maybe we're not gonna be pals. <laughs> um but it was so hard for me to parse through in the Northeast in a way that my friends who lived in the Northeast could just identify really quickly. And I, I had I had a really hard time with that. Anyway, this has nothing to do with liberal racism. Um, <laughs> but I was just thinking about it as I... Anyway, um, there was a night in Connecticut where pizza places ran out of cheese. Um, in New Haven at least, because of some delivery mishap or some bullshit. And I lived above a pizza place that was not one of the notable good ones. So there's like in New Haven, there's like a few ones that are like nationally renowned and very good. I lived above one that was the place you went to if like five of those places were closed, <laughs> um, or too busy. And so because I lived above this like second, perhaps third, fourth, fifth-rate pizza place, um, all the other pizza places kind of systemically closed when there was no cheese because there was no cheese. This place I lived above was like now's our time to shine. Um, <laughs> And they kept, they would try to do this bullshit where they would just like try to slide people boxes of crust and sauce without like consent either. It was just like, here's your pizza. And then someone would be like, go out the door and peek at it and be like, wait a minute. Almost got me. Um, So this is is a poem about the night in Connecticut where pizza places ran out of cheese, but it is also about my divorce. (laughs) The cheese is a metaphor. I'm gonna say one quick thing, and then I'm gonna read. It. I hate long prefaces, but I so I read this poem on NPR. Um, like one of the first poems of the book that the world ever heard was like me reading this poem on NPR, and they made me like go back and repreface it because they were like, um, "Will you explain how this is about your divorce?" <laughs> and so I've just got, I've taken to saying the cheese is a metaphor, <laughs> and it seems to work. they were like, "We just don't hear enough divorce." <laughs> it's like cool, cool, cool. Yeah, you know. Love to richly articulate my trauma for the public radio listeners. (laughs) From the humid brick building below my humid brick building, a woman bellows at the pizza man who, it seems, threw no cheese atop the crust in its red river of sauce because, as he shouts above the sirens of State Street and the growing crowd lined outside his shop, it is Friday night, and he is woefully short on mozzarella, and there are far better pizza options on every corner of this city, overpriced, and tonight bursting at the seams with lonely people who will seek the warmth spilling from the edges of a cardboard box and onto their laps to their fingers on the walk back to a newly empty apartment. I love the heat for how it separates the desire for touch from the practicality of it. If it gets too hot to fuck, as it did for Mookie and Tina, then we're all in our own sinking islands anyway. There is no cheese in this town anymore. And what could be worse than the fraction of a dream behind every door you crawl to? It is Friday, and surely Some of my people are praising a fresh coin in their bank accounts, and what a tragedy to spend it on a half-finished freedom and the argument below has poured out into the streets and the waiting masses and I imagine this is no longer over cheese but over every mode of unfulfilled promise the cluster of sins still stuck to a body fresh from the waters of baptism the parent who must dig a grave for their youngest child from below a man yells there are only three ingredients you can't even get that right (laughs) and isn't it funny to vow you will love someone until you are dead. I'm gonna read two more things. One of them is like longer, but um, I wanna read this poem that I wrote this summer and edited. Every year I teach, or for the past four years, I've taught at Kenyon College in the summer for the Young Writers Program. And it's really the most generative time for me to write poems because um, you know, as instructors are supposed to write, the whole concept is like, there's, uh, at least for me in the classroom, and I believe this across all ages, there's like no higher, I don't like the hierarchy of like teacher-student, I think if we're talking about writing as you step in the room, we're all writers, therefore I, I will not give you a prompt and then just kick it, like I'm writing the shit too, you know? Um, and early in the process, there's this prompt about making a list of intangible items and then writing a poem that brings that intangible item to life in some way. And I wrote my list of intangible items, and one of the, the, my fellow writers in the class was like, you didn't write that you always wear a cap. And I was like, damn. <laughs> Got me, Samantha. <laughs> um, and so that really opened up a whole thing for me, because I, I like playing with slang in my poems a lot. And I, I started thinking around the, the slang term no cap. Uh, which I've, I really love as a statement, you know, I really love it as like a sentiment, as a rap ad lib, as like something that my barber yells a lot, you know. I just love it. I love hearing it in the air. Um, and so I played with it a bit. This poem is called No Cap. And I should say this poem is, de- although I don't think any of them are here, this poem is dedicated to the Kenyan young writers of the Ascension Classroom 223. The old head strokes the winding forest of gray, cascading to cover the wrinkles sketched into the sides of his face by the uneven desires of time. And he asks me what on earth the kids down the block mean when they rattle the summer puddles with their laughter and slap hands at the end of a good ass story and yell, no cap. And I admit, I did find a single gray curling a cruel finger out the depths of my beard's otherwise darkness. But I still know the gospel tucked underneath slang, leaping from even the most decorated tongue. And this is meant to say, come close. This is meant to say, I have nothing left to hide, even with the congregation of the most fashionable shade. I would never lie to you, as I lied to my father at 16, with crisp bills lining my pocket, as he searched the house for the grocery money he left on the table the night before. No cap, I would not betray you now, as my father's own hairline betrays him, retreating to the shadows from which it was born, his dome, a nation with no capital, but still glistening with any season. Say, no cap, me, and mean you will stand at attention for your own undoing the percussion of the knees interior in the bed that grows harder to get out of and the lover who is no longer beside you in it the news says everything is receding the ice caps will eventually be what swallows the living a long slow braid of heat no cap Dear friends, the moment for deceptions has long passed and so it must be said, I praise the thick hair that once coiled high on the crown of my mother and I praise the ancestor who tore handfuls of his burly and blooming afro out at my mother's funeral, littering a procession of discarded black wool in front of the open casket and howling his way towards madness. Praise my barber who tilts my head towards the sunlight laughing its way in the barber shop window. Praise my barber whispering, you've got a hairline I would kill for with a blade to the edge of my temple praise the cap cocked backwards and bowing towards the drowning earth even on days my cut looks too good to conceal I would not lie to you about this praise that I've never loved anyone enough to unravel the blessing of my own hair upon their leaving um, I'm gonna read a thing about black people in spades that is in So They Don't Dance No More is um, probably coming out in 2021. Um, if anyone in here is a writer and has like a long nonfiction project, you know, like the date that is, this book was supposed to come out in 2020 and I was like, I don't want this book to come out during an election year. Um, <laughs> and now I'm worried that even 2021 might be cutting it too close. So, um, But this is a book about various modes of, of black performance outside of the white gaze and the joy that, those modes of performance can bring, and so this is a piece. I'm gonna read maybe two sections of this piece that is about spades, um, and this um, this piece is dedicated to my dear friends Dinez and Nate and Gerard. And yeah, I'll read two sections. If you're black and bad at spades, uh, please don't take offense to this. <laughs> First off, no black person is as good at spades as they will tell you they are. So, you know, we're all liars in that regard. (laughs) This is from a piece called It Was Hard to Say Who Invented Spades. Somewhere on the road between Oxford, Mississippi and Tuscaloosa, Alabama, my homie Gerard looks at the cards fanned out in his hands. And for anyone who has played enough games of spades and lost enough games of spades, it is known that you watch the moment directly after your opponent picks up their cards and assesses them. Some people sit, stone-faced, staring at what they've got and nodding slowly as if it could be anything. Some people make grand gestures about what it is they don't got and how bad the next few minutes of the hand playing out are gonna be, the more dramatic the bigger the potential for a lie. The person who throws an arm over their eyes or pats away fake sweat from their brow while exclaiming something to their partner like, I don't know how we're gonna make it out of this one, or I'm gonna need you to carry me. In this particular game, in a white van speeding through various shades of barren southern landscapes, I'm partners with Nate. Nate is from Chicago and probably better than I am at spades, so it isn't ever worth saying that out loud. And it certainly isn't worth saying now, as we are careening towards a certain loss. Nate and I are vastly different spades players, him often operating at the edge of risks that seem unlikely to pay off until they do, at the very last moment, and me calculated, taking every possible card into account and agonizing over the exact number of tricks to be taken before setting down safe bids. For this, Nate and I are usually foes in this game, two players on opposite teams during most get-togethers, but today, in a twist, we have ended up as teammates, and I see my friends best when I can see who they are during a game of spades. How, in their playing, they become the parts of their personalities that I most envy. Nate, with his devil-may-care instincts worn outside his body. Gerard, with his quiet but steely confidence. Denez, the fourth player in this game, tucked into the corner of their back row seat and shouting out the kind of quick-fire jokes they're known to unfurl when at their most uninhibited. The kind of jokes that send us tucking our cards into our chests and taking a break to laugh while the Dine- continues to push the joke further standing on top of their own comedic crescendo while we all writhe upon the unforgiving leather of an old van being driven by someone who has surely had enough of our cackling. And this perhaps is how I love my friends most. Talking our shit no matter what the cards are telling us is possible. Pretending as if we're playing for all the money in our pockets and not some stories to tell later. A scroll of inside nudges that might make a person wish they were there. I like my friends most when it is all about. About who wins but the hidden joke is that the only people losing are the people not here to witness our fruitless throwing of cards with the stakes resting at everything or nothing at all the windows in this old van can barely open and so the sweat begins to soak through our clothing Nate dabbing away at the real beads gathering at his forehead this time and me leaning back to get some of the stifling and humid air from a small sliver of the van's window that we could crack but the heat doesn't mean a thing when the company is this good to open these windows and let the outside world peel off a slice of our sweaty, laugh-soaked, echoing glory would make us too generous and too foolish. Let it all stay inside this van where we can savor it ourselves, where every portion of it overflows and rests at our feet, an embarrassment of riches. Let the high cotton we speed past stay unpicked if it means those who might be tasked with picking it get to stay inside and look at a good hand they were dealt and pretend it is a bad one. Oh friends, I most adore you become when there are cards in your hands. I appreciate how limitless our love for each other can be with our guards down, when the first bit of shit talk rattles the chest and then gives permission for more and more and more until the talking of shit too is a type of romance. Anyone worthy of being taken down is worthy of hearing all the ways they are being taken down. I meet my enemies with silence and my friends with a symphony of insults or jokes that cut just deep enough for people to see them for a short burst of time, but not deep enough to leave a scar dearest siblings, even in an ass whipping where I get dealt bad hand after bad hand. I would rather be somewhere with you, in a van with no table, our own flat surface. The cards jump around on the slick leather seats and we lean haphazardly over the rows to throw down our offerings into the pile. We are hovering in each other's space, too close, but also not nearly close enough. And what I meant to say, before you once again indulge the reckless swelling of my heart, was about the moment Gerard beloved and largely silent, looked upon his hand, one of the last hands of the game, a game he spent not talking much, but hiding behind his low hat and always immaculate beard. In a few seconds after skimming my hand and realizing that it was, once again, entirely worthless to the cause, I watched Rod spread the cards in his hand out real wide, the smile across his face matching their width, and in the silence of the van, without even speaking, Gerard takes out his cell phone, turns the camera on, and snaps a photo of the cards before him. After a split second of confusion, he shrugs and mumbles out, This hand is so good, if I didn't take a picture, wouldn't nobody believe it. (laughs) And there we go. Set off to laughing again and slapping the leather seats and covering our faces with our bad hands for the bad cards. I think I will fight anything that stands in the way of the people I love getting to be the most flourishing versions of themselves. Even if it is a fool's game, once used to pass time during wars and now used to pass time during road trips or house parties or night when the other option is isolation. I'm only here and alive at the mercy of someone else's ticking clock. Joy is such a flimsy, feel-good word. I am talking instead about what can be wrestled from otherwise uncomfortable circumstances and repurposed anywhere a flat surface can be fashioned. Section two. There's like a tonal shift, so. It might bear mentioning to you now that depending on how you play and where you're from, that little ace of spades might not mean shit. On the east side of Columbus, Ohio, the ace might be the high card. But if you go a few blocks north, those folks might take the red twos out the pack and get the jokers in the mix, travel in some other direction, and someone might play joker, joker, deuce, ace, and then what are you going to do? But pray you actually don't get that ace of spades. But then someone might scrap the jokers altogether and play deuces high, where the two of spades is a high card, and then the diamonds and the clubs and the hearts all get run before you get to your ace, so you might as well just set it on fire if you get it. Some would say... There are as many ways to play spades as there are black people playing spades. And I'm sure this is not true. But I still don't sit down at a table I've never been to before without asking about some house rules. In some cribs, a person might not care if you and your partner have full, coded conversations across whatever slab of table has been set up. But in others, even the slightest hint towards table talk means you're falling into debt, two tricks or more depending on how egregious to fine. In Atlanta in 2016, some older folk didn't appreciate my slick attempts at feeding thinly veiled metaphors to my partner to tip them off to what was in my hand. And so they took two tricks and then three and then for the next until my partner finally threw up her arms mid-game and snapped will you shut the fuck up which oddly cost us two more tricks There's no real consistency to house rules other than the fact that one doesn't question someone else's house rules. It feels, in effect, like questioning an ancestor or an elder, someone who is likely not there in their earthly form, but someone who taught the game in a very particular way and demanded it to be played as such, and so the spades player must be versatile and willing to go with any rules laid down, even if they seem absurd or unfair or entirely whimsical. If playing in mixed company in some neutral location like a hotel room or a basement bar, the house rules defer to whoever is from the place the game is being played in, or whoever has some kin from somewhere closest to wherever the game is being played in. There is no governing body that makes it like this, but there is a code of honor among the people playing. Once, in Virginia, someone I was playing with attempted to trace their family's roots to Charlottesville, just so they could play deuces high when no one else wanted to. <laughs> what strikes me as most in line with the American experience when it comes to spades though. It's a shifting value of a card's worth. How the red twos can either be dispensable or invaluable depending on what city the game is being played in. How the ace of spades can be a symbol of ultimate power or a source of anxiety depending on who is holding it and what borders they are sitting within. I like a people to be nothing if not malleable. A people who can open their nearly bare cupboards and pantries and still find their way to a meal for a week. Or a people who can choose not to code switch and still get the job. Like the history of black people in America. Spades was born under one set of circumstances but it came to life under another, and because of the transitory nature of its earliest days, it makes sense that spades has so many different iterations with nowhere to trace them to. Soldiers came back from war and taught the game to people who taught the game to people, and along the line things got tweaked, new challenges got added, and now there's a card game where the worth of a card in your hand swings wildly depending on where you take a seat, and it might also bear mentioning that I have had more than enough money in my pockets in cities where I've managed to still be invisible in the middle of Texas, where the host at the restaurant nervously looked back towards some empty tables before looking at my road-weary attire of sweatpants and an old band t-shirt and telling me that there were just no tables for me at the moment. Everything was reserved and I'd have to wait at least two hours, but potentially more. There was a Wendy's just down the road, I was told. We're in New Haven, Connecticut, where I'd been living for well over a year. I returned from a run to meet my mailman at the door of my apartment, preparing to place my mail in the slot, and when I tell him I live in the apartment, I can take it. He looks at me skeptically and insists I can pick it up after he locks the slot again and he slams the mail door shut and locks it. And I'm not particularly sad or angry about incidents like these but I have been thinking about what it is for a person to shift in worth, depending on who might be doing the looking, and what city they might be doing the looking in. And so of course I love a game where a card's value can change, depending on the land where it rests, or the hand that dealt it, or which ancestor whispered a game's rules to another one. Spades isn't a game distant enough in history to pick up this many fluid iterations, and yet here we are. I most like to think that someone was dealt a losing hand one too many times, and then they changed the rules to suit the bad hand they were getting. All of a sudden, a hand saddled with twos is a type of royalty I play my game with the ace high Because I just happen to be from a place Where the people don't like to complicate a good thing As long as it stays good Or I'm from a place where if the people are lucky They can live a life happily ignored Without shaking anyone else's foundation When people people ask what I like so much About being from the Midwest I get to tell them I know the architecture of the wind I know the violence it blows in and out I like to keep my survival as simple as I can it is so delicious to set your own rules and know that anyone who walks through your door has to bow to them. Thank you. Do I... Do I have any questions now? Oh, okay. See, folks? Sorry, I'm... It's very warm. Um, Y'all wanna ask questions? you can ask me questions about like writing but can also be about music or sports or popular culture or whatever. Like folks who like know me in any way know that I'm like the last thing I usually want to talk about is writing. Um but I'll answer some questions about writing if people have them, but we talk about whatever else. Literally anything you want. Hey. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Danny Brown's new album? I love Danny Brown's The Q tip joint? Yeah. yeah, I love it. I love it mostly because I think um this is adjacent to Danny Brown, but I think getting to watch Q-Tip function as a producer through many eras has been really fascinating for me. And getting to watch him um, maintain the abilities that he really built, that he built his sound on, and just like not bow to modern production aesthetics is really impressive. So I love the Danny Brown record. I need to spend more time with it. I'm... When I listen to new albums, I listen to them in three different modes. I listen to them um, on a run, I listen to them in the car, and I listen to them while doing something else with my day. Um, and I, I've only gotten to the first two on that one. Uh, so I can't wait to hear that third one. I thought, oh, yes. Who was your first? So I got, um, in my opinion, I got screwed in both of them because I was. Um, It's a snake draft, and I was like the last pick. And I'm the commissioner in the one. I should have just like, you know, cheated. Um, But so, Rudy Gobert in both. Um, Because it was a snake draft, and I was getting like a, you know, like Rudy Gobert was on the board for both times, and I I just really love Rudy Gobert for his like fantasy stat stuffing potential. Um, And I forgot who I picked at the top of the second round for the snake one. Um, De'Aaron Fox, I think, for one, because I really love De'Aaron Fox. And I think the Fox is, I think Sacramento is going to be very good. Yeah, I think people are, I think people are fucking around and sleeping on both Sacramento and like kind of the Hawks. I think people think the Hawks are not going to, I think the Hawks are going to be good. Um, you know, but who knows, it's like night one of the season and, you know, yeah, everyone looks like an all-star on night one, except for Kyle Lowry, apparently, who shot like three for 14. I'm sorry if any Torontoans are here. You know, if you even suggest that Kyle Lowry's, like, maybe not that good anymore, people from Toronto will, like, (laughs) show up at your door with knives in hand. (laughs) Which, I don't know. I like him a lot, but other questions? Hi. So, you have a poem in the new book that is, like, a tribute to Eve Ewing. Yeah. Can you tell me about, like, her work and, like, how it inspired that? Yeah. Well, Eve's Eve's a a sister to me. Um, I mean, I have a sister, a real sister, but Eve is uh, is like another sibling to me. You know, I think we... um, Sorry, I sometimes get weirdly very emotional when talking about Eve and I's friendship, Um, which is odd, because I don't think that happens for her, probably. Uh, I am the more emotional of the two of us. You know, Eve and I... um, So much of, I I always think about how friendships, especially because so many friendships are public, friendships between writers are so public, so people generally really only see like the top of the iceberg. But underneath that iceberg, so people are just like, there's a picture of Hanif even on Instagram. They're like so chummy, and that's true. But for the bottom of that iceberg for us, I think was just us really like checking for our work and pursuing our work when no one else was for a long time. Like, doing readings where not a lot of people were showing up, but we were still very invested in being there for each other. Um, When The Crown Ain't Worth Much came out, and I was, like, not trying to have a book release, so I was going through just a lot, Eve, like, set up a book release for me in New York and, like, made sure people came, you know what I mean? Um, And so to me, that's... Eve is um, someone who I owe a great debt to because I know Eve would love me if I never wrote anything again. If today I stopped writing, Eve Eve would still call me to see how I was doing as a person. And I think that's valuable. And so, um, you know, that piece in the book, she has this um, poem in Electric Arches, I think, that is a one-sided interview with Ron Artest, the basketball player, and I, I, you know, it was one of those things where I saw that, and hers is formatted differently, it looks differently, Um, but I saw that and I was like, damn, I gotta take it. You know, like, it was one of those things where I was like, and normally, I'm not usually on that shit, normally I'm, I'm big on invention and not like, you know, I, I, I'm someone who's like, if it's been done, I'm not going to redo it myself. But I saw that, and I was like, I got to do it. I got to. It was so cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, poets I'm reading right now, I, I love, normally, I didn't do it tonight because I forgot the book, but I've been opening my sets on tour with this Mary Ruffle poem that I love from Mary Ruffle's new book, um, which is, Mary Ruffle's new book is so good. A lot of the poems are about, like, consuming your own tears, which I'm into. Uh, representation, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> representation for the emos. Um, and... Um I really loved um Jericho Brown's The Tradition. Um I think that book is really great. But I'm also um trying to read a lot of translated poetry and trying to get more into that. Um because that's just like been a spot that I haven't been able to look into. Um but right now I'm like doing a ton of nonfiction research, which is less fun. Yeah. I spent, like, all of my day yesterday reading about Josephine Baker, which to me was fun, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey. And then both of you, but not at the same time. You first, and then. Um, from the Midwest, are you a uh, Doomtree fan? Of course. Okay. Doom, yeah, is is anyone else a Doomtree fan? <laughs> Shout out to the five of us. You know what I mean? Are you from Minneapolis? Are you from Twin Cities? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I saw Doomtree a long time ago. Uh and it was just really fulfilling. I haven't seen them since, but Yeah, they um I'm from New York, but they hadn't come here for a really long time and then I finally saw them here. and It was like cute. <laughs> yeah, they're great. Your earrings are also very good. Spooky season. Yo. Uh, I'm sorry, I have a question about writing. It's okay. <laughs> I didn't mean to discourage that. I'm always just like, I would rather talk about sneakers or sports or snacks. The three S's, but I'm down to talk about writing too. No, I'm thankful. I'm thankful to not be governed by genre, you know, or to not even think about it because I think um, I would feel some restrictions in that way. You know, what Baldwin book I like the most is um, "The Devil Finds Work," which is that the film, the book of like film writing, and I like it because it's like not a banger. You know, it's like fine, but it's fascinating <laughs> because it's. But it's and the reason it's fine is because Baldwin is not like a. Fi- he acknowledged that he's not like a film scholar, but he just. Essentially, it was like a dude at the movies trying to commit his best writing to what he'd witnessed, you know? And I think that's the work of the writer. And so, for me, if I believe that, I can't be like, I'm gonna commit the best writing I can to what I am fortunate enough to witness, and that writing has to take the form of blank. I kind of sit down and I'm like, this writing, I'm gonna commit the best writing to what I've witnessed, and that writing has to take the form of whatever my curiosities allow it to. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some points, like if I'm 2,000 words into some shit, I'm kind of past the point of like, this is just going to be a really long poem. But I think the question of editing comes into play too. You know, Um, there's a piece in "They Don't Dance No More" that's about Mary Clayton in the Rolling Stones. Um, And for those of you who have read Fortune, you know there's that piece at the back of Fortune that's about um, Mary Clayton and Virginia Woolf. And like the poem came first, and then when I finished the poem, I was like, that's not enough. That's this thing is still hammering away at me, right? The problem, I don't believe a poem is ever done. I can, get to the end of a, I can get to the end of a long-form piece of writing and say, well, I think I've done the best I can with the tools I have. I believe the curiosities I bring into a poem feel more infinite, right? That's why there's like 18 of those flower poems in this book, right? Um, because I don't believe obsession should have a stopping point. Well, when it comes to like writing, don't. <laughs> I said that in an interview recently or something like that, and someone emailed me, and was like, do you mean like every obsession? I was like, no. <laughs> It was like, I, yeah, I don't know. And I got the vibe, it was like a, a younger dude who emailed me, I was like, listen, stop it, stop whatever, literally stop whatever you're doing. <laughs> um, it, but, but I think when it comes to writing and those curiosities, like, I think those obsessions um, deserve being turned over as many times as possible. So, um, And I think I'm, I'm at the service of, of beautiful language, ultimately. And so, I, if I can shoehorn some of that into kind of a, a heavily researched piece of writing that becomes an essay, then, then I've done my job. Yeah. Hey, Portia. Hi. So, you mentioned before how there was that point where you and Eve were just doing these readings, and then a lot of people weren't necessarily showing up. Yeah. So
1: What did that process
0: look like to you that didn't make you just go, fuck it, is going to Well, I stay discouraged. I mean, not always, but I I, I think, you know, I, I'm someone, I mean, I write about this, talk about it a lot, I mean, I'm someone who's saddled by anxiety all the time, right? Um. And I will say this, I live in Columbus, Ohio, where I was born and raised, so I live in the place where, th- I live in the place I love, that I'm fortunate enough to have, and, and to be from a place and to love it is a privilege, right? Um, or to not have, like, a fully traumatic relationship with a place you're from is a privilege. Um, and I, so I live in a place I love around people who loved me, I mean, much like Eve, but people who've known me longer, people who would love me, who loved me before I published anything, who would love me if I did say, fuck it, I'm done with this. That is what grounds me in a way. Um, that's kind of what pulls me away, too, from this um, kind of, like, capitalistic-driven mode of competition. Because, like... Frankly, there's shit I just don't care about like I, I it's easier for me to hone in on what I care about with the work and to dismiss the rest. Um, you know, a perfect example of this is like I think about and don't get me wrong, like the, I was very honored with the National Book Award shit, like honored, no doubt. But when that happened, so many people wanted to talk to me and like, how are you celebrating? I was like, yo, I'm gonna go help my friend put together a crib because that's what we plan to do today. Because like, you know, just having the fucking baby and i got and i have a allen wrench so this is what i'm doing you know <laughs> and but i'm saying that because i think if i lived other places the stakes would feel higher the stakes don't feel high to me because i i think um even um even the outside view of failure still means that i'm being loved by the folks who were there for me before i succeeded in any way that other people measure success um so yes i do get discouraged but i think that my proximity to the people I love helps me through it. Um, But also where I get discouraged the most is not with my own work. I get discouraged, um, I get discouraged by the idea that writers become, or anyone, only becomes lens through what they produce and not who they are. That's discouraging and I don't know how to combat that as well. Um, I always joke that I'm going to just write enough books until I can be like a reclusive. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. Oh, hi. hi. <laughs> hey. I'm from Connecticut. Yeah. Wait, what part? Born there. Oh, Yeah. Uh, like resolving that one's like, oh my god, Connecticut. But Connecticut's not Yale, it's not Wesleyan. Right. So how can we, the like black folks from Connecticut, like
1: move there? Like that's like where I'm from. Like how can we embrace the people who come there who feel like New England racism is like so tough
0: to How can we help? Because like New England racism, like I'm like, I got that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was so, so right I felt like that, yeah. Call up the
1: senator. I'll
0: be like hello, I experienced racism. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I will do that. like what what do we do to embrace the people come here for school and come here for like to like <laughs> yeah. to like like we can do that. I tell me how to help. I love hello, I've experienced racism. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, I wish there was like a number, like, definitely abolish police, but like, give me the number where I could just like dial one number and be like, hello, I've experienced the racism. (laughs) And like, I don't really want any consequences, I just want like someone to know. (laughs) Um, So I I do think uh, what you said is wild because when I did run into black folks who were from there, and I would explain, like, they'd be like, oh, they would be like, you were it's like, oh, this kind of racism? I just know how to navigate it. But I think because of just the like, Diaspora, the American diaspora of black folks, right, we have, we are products of people who migrated to places before us, and those people undoubtedly, they're, the, the navigation of racism is baked into our DNA depending on where our people stopped, right? Um, so I thought, and, and I was in Connecticut when Bets was in Connecticut, when Dwayne Bets. I mean, we were both in New Haven, he was like deeply in the institution of it, but I remember being a black person who was in Connecticut and who wasn't involved in any institution, who was just like living there, it was hard for me to find inroads um, to finding other black people who weren't involved in institutions. That's partially because I lived in New Haven, though, where, like, the monstrosity is the institution. Um, To be fair, what I did love about New Haven was that the activism spaces were really rich and vibrant with, like, young folks who were just really about their shit, you know what I mean? Um, And that was really great. Um, But I also think finding... I always think that black people, and I I live in a city that is Ohio. I mean, I live in Columbus, Ohio, where Ohio State is the monstrosity. I always think about how black folks can find our way to each other outside of the confines of the institution, because I think so much of the narrative is like, we're in this institution together, so we must link arms and make it through the day. But on the outside of that, there's a diaspora on the entire outside of that who doesn't have access or want access to the institution, but still need to survive those days nonetheless. And so... That is my answer to that, but I will be laughing at, hello, I've experienced racism. <laughs> Why are we laughing at that for a long time? <laughs> Can I do like a couple more questions, maybe? Two more, two more. Make them good, I don't care if they're good, but yes. Is there an athlete a good Oh no, this is the question that, uh, is, there, is there an athlete that based on their personality I think they'd be a good writer? This is the only question. This is the best question. There's an interview with the poet Ross Gay that I love, where someone asked him how, asked him to describe his basketball game, and the first thing he says is, "This is the most important question of my life." <laughs> um, oh, my palms are sweating just thinking about it, because in my head, I played soccer in high school and college, so I'm I'm trying to like I think it, my heart says soccer player. It has to because there's so many to see the field is poetic, right? To know the movements of, to know the movements for the movements to happen is an act of poetry. Um, romantic poetry, perhaps. So, okay. I think, um, I think the soccer player Eden Hazard would be a wonderful confessional poet. I think Russell Westbrook would be an overzealous prose poet. Uh, I think... Um, I don't really watch much football anymore. Uh, I gave up on the NFL a few years back, but I know that I, I, I like watch the highlights of Patrick Mahomes, and I think Patrick Mahomes would be the kind of like Lucy Brockporto very long sprawling poem kind of thing, um, or even Ross Gay, where it's like you know very long poem about like, and then at the end it's like, and also this friend you fell in love with is dead, um, and you're like, oh cool. Um, Sorry, I could do this all day. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do one more. Um, every sport. I, um... Well, I think Serena Williams would be, like, Poet Laureate. But I do think, if we're naming the style of poet that Serena Williams would be, um, I think she would be uh, image-heavy in a good way. Not the bad image-heavy, but I think she'd be, like, image-heavy sonnets. Um... And while we're here, um, I think many members of the U.S. Women's Soccer Team, but particularly Alex Morgan, um, would be like the, one of those hybrid poem fiction writers, where it's like, this is a short story, but it's also a poem. And she would eventually pivot into YA. <laughs> you had a thing. Yes. Uh, well, At propose- hey, Wesleyan. Gosh, that seems so long ago. My favorite films that have come out in recent years, they're all bad. I So, I mean, so the, the good ones, like Moonlight. Um, I'll get, like, the good ones out of the way. Um, because most of them are bad. I really loved Moonlight. Um, I really loved the film adaptation of We the Animals. Um, I, um, you know... I kind of liked uh, on second watch, particularly. Um, I liked uh, what is the movie where? Never mind. Um, <laughs> I watch a lot of bad movies. It's I I go so here's what I do. I go to movies alone. Um, it's like the thing I do pretty generally. To get out of my own head, to get out of my own work, I go to movies alone. And the movies I go to see alone, I'm really not discerning. I'll go see anything. Because it's not about the movie, right? It's about like being present in a space where I don't have to look at my phone, where I'm like the only person. So I will see anything. So I've seen mostly bad movies over the past several years. Tell me some of your favorite movies. Well, I you could the Will Smith movie where he's two of himself? Yeah. <laughs> Is it good? Whoa, and it's like Fresh Prince versus Will Smith. I saw um, I recently saw Ad Astra, and I, yeah, it was weird. I just don't think I'm very into the like man versus space narrative. And I thought I was. I don't like space movies. I think because they kind of freak me out. And I thought I could see that one and like it, but it's really just about like going to space to realize your dad still like fucking sucks, you know? Like, <laughs> It's a whole movie. Sorry did I spoil that for anyone. His dad still sucks. He's like traversing space and then it's like, oh damn, my dad is still a raging asshole. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I should see more movies. I will see Gemini Man. It's not in Columbus yet. I really want to see Parasite, but it's not, a, it's not in my home theater yet. But soon. Thank you for your film recommendations. Thank you all for listening to me tonight. Have a good night.
1: All right, one more round of applause, right? We could could take up one more.
0: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.